in Jesus this morning, it's because God lovingly chose you and assigned to you faith and sonship as your destiny. So we're going to unpack that this morning. And as, as we work through this text, I want you to keep a couple things in mind. All right, and I've, I've laid these out for you. A couple things to keep in mind as we work through this text. First, we, we must stay with the text. We must stay with only what the text says. No more and no less. That's because what Paul does here, what he reveals, is very deep water. And we must be careful to say only what Scripture says about these issues. And that's good rule and practice in, in anything, right? But especially in these issues. We're dealing with one of those rare moments in Scripture when the curtains are pulled back and we see, we get the chance as finite creatures to see into God's throne room, into His, His eternal purposes. There's much mystery here. And we're very frail human beings. And I'm a very frail human communicator. And because of misunderstandings of these truths, many Christians have been taught that these concepts are actually evil. So I don't know what your experience has been or your background or your upbringing or what you've been taught, but there's been a lot of debate in church history around these issues. And that's largely because people have gone beyond what the text has said. Well, regardless of what you've been taught, I want to challenge you to listen to Paul afresh this morning. Alright, so first thing you've got to know is you've got to stay with what the text says, no more, no less. And the next thing I want to just tell you as we begin is keep track of the moments in your heart where you say, you, f- you find rising, but, but what about this? But, hang on, hang, you're saying this, but what, you know, you, you know those moments I'm talking about. You know, you have them in class or in life in general. But these are really important moments. You need to think them through. But don't let them derail you and distract you while we're working through what the text actually says. Does that make sense? We've all experienced that. There's something that goes off in our minds, and now we're chasing a rabbit in our minds, and we're potentially missing the very answer to the question that we're asking because we're thinking about something different. So as you go along, your question may get answered, and if it doesn't, we can obviously talk. I'm here all week. Um, so I would love to, to talk through this with you if this is different than what you've been taught. And the last thing I just want to remind you about is, is to, to encourage you to remember the context of what we're studying, what we're discussing this morning. This is intended for your deep joy and comfort from the Apostle Paul. That's why he penned this. Just like it was deeply joyous for Paul, and it stimulated this white-hot praise to God from his own heart and mouth. That's the purpose of these truths. And we'll, we're going to look at how this truth should be working in us. But now I want you to just remember that Paul didn't write this to evoke angry theology debates. Okay? That's not the reason. He wrote this to evoke humility in the church and worship, praise. And that's where all this is going. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at why we've been given every spiritual blessing. Why have we been given every spiritual blessing? And Paul is going to give his answer to this in really two complementary parts. Okay? So there's one answer, but uh, it comes in two, in two parts. Kind of like a two-part answer. So this is, this is where we're going. And the first, his, the first part of his answer, we could, we could say it like this. Whoa! 
Didn't realize that all came up at one time. Okay. Just write the first part down, all right? If you're taking notes. And if you want, you can just write eternally chosen. You know, that's easier for you if you want to just kind of take shorthand. But the first part of his answer here is why we've been given these blessings is because we have been eternally chosen for perfection in his presence. Eternally chosen for perfection in his presence. Look in verse 4. He says, context, we've been given every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And I take that little in love phrase with the next clause, okay? So we'll just put that on the back burner. All right? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and blameless before him. So my summary of this verse is that we've been eternally chosen for perfection in his presence. Perfection in his presence. That'd be this. So notice the first word in verse 4 in your Bibles. Okay? Notice the first word of verse 4 in your Bibles. This is going to help us understand his argument. Depending on your version, you might have something different. Like if you kind of look at your neighbor and they've got something, you've got a different version. There might be a different translation of this word. The ESV translates this word as even as. Okay? How many of you have ESV? Alright? How many of you have NASB? Okay? How many of you have something different? Okay? Alright, so whatever your whatever your version says, it, there, there might be some, some different translations of that. But the ESV doesn't give a lot of clarity to what Paul is actually doing. Now I'm not I'm not being willy-nilly here in, in my retranslation, okay? I think it's better. Uh, I think a better translation is simply because. Okay? So, because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He gave us these blessings because he chose us to receive them. Paul uses this particular word in Greek as causal in other places. So it's very clear that that's a way that this, this word can be used. So because... Why did he give us these blessings? Because he chose us to receive them. Another way of saying it is like this. The blessings we've received are in perfect harmony with what God has ordained for us to receive. It's, perfect, it's in perfect continuity. God has a plan, and how it's working out on the human timetable is in perfect accord with that plan and with that choice. It's the bottom line reason that you believe the gospel. Okay? The bottom line, the most fundamental, because God chose you. And this isn't a new concept with Paul. Don't think this is sort of the Apostle Paul going rogue here in in theology. The other apostles teach this, as well as Jesus himself. We don't have time to explore all that, but we could. And if we stretch back into the Old Testament, we realize that God has always had a plan. This isn't something new. God's in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, right? I mean, he does whatever he wants. Nobody's ahead of him. Nobody's on top, above God, in authority above him. Nobody controls him. And so from day one, God has chosen his people. In fact, he's created his people, actually. 
from Adam to Abraham to the patriarchs to Israel to David to the Messiah, they are all a product of God's direct choice, the scriptures say. And now Paul is telling us that we too have been chosen in the Messiah to be the recipients of the blessings found in him. So, I want you to kind of feel how this may have landed on that first century audience for a minute. Kind of put yourself on the back burner and think about who he was writing to. In a day when the Gentiles were a little insecure about their standing as the people of God, this would have sounded like the most glorious music to their ears. The God of Israel has chosen Gentiles. He's chosen idolaters. He's chosen the enemies of his people to receive salvation, to receive every spiritual blessing, to stand alongside of believing Israel. Paul wants to assure them, and to you and I today, that they are included right alongside of Israel as part of God's people. And we'll look more at this in several weeks, but just for now, that's how the original readers would have heard it. I mean, a privilege to be chosen by the king. Regardless of your view of Donald Trump, Imagine if the president was waiting for you when you got home today and said, I've chosen you for a task, right? I mean, that's like, whoa, the president of the United States chosen me to do something for him? That's, that's the idea. God has chosen the, the enemies. And, and if we take the illustration even further, uh, you were a terrorist, okay? Uh, and this president is still, he's going to forgive you and work for that, work to that end, but he's chosen you to, to be a recipient of his blessing. So, that's how the Gentiles, that's how, how it would have landed on this. And they would have been deeply encouraged. And so should we. If you believed in Jesus today, that faith didn't come from you, ultimately. You exercised it. It felt like it came from you. You know, it wasn't like contrary to what you wanted. You believed. But true faith is God-given and it's indestructible. That's what that means. It doesn't, it doesn't originate from you. God will keep us believing, in other words. We sing that song, He Will Hold Me Fast. We sang it at a wedding this weekend. How can we sing that? We don't believe this. God will bring trials to refine our faith, to prove that we really have it, and this yields even greater assurance that He really has chosen us. If you want more on that, you can write down 2 Peter 1, because that's exactly what 2 Peter is arguing. He's saying, he actually tells you there to make your calling an election sure, to pursue that. To know that I really have been called. And how do you do that? Well, you pursue that by trusting Jesus more and obeying him more in this life. And it's, it's revealing to you greater assurance. Yeah, God really has called me. I really have been chosen by him. And so God is so committed to this that he brings these trials to reveal our faith to us. To strengthen our faith. To put us on our face. To... to, to build up that spiritual seal within us to show us that, he, that He's chosen us, that we belong to Him. We're tightly gripped in His hands. And He's got us, and He won't let us go. That's the, really the implications of, of this truth here. And what's new, I guess, and, and really staggering information is when this choice took place. So when did it happen? Your second point on the outline here. When did it happen? Paul says God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Okay? Before the foundation of the world. Or like I put here, eternally. It was an eternal choice.
So Paul says a couple. He says you were chosen in Christ, and it was before the foundation of the world. So what does that mean in Christ? Well, it seems to indicate that we were chosen to be redeemed by him. I think that's what that phrase means. And to experience the union with Christ that he had designed eternally. Okay? And this choice took place not after we were born, not after God sized us up and found us worthy of his choice, but before we were born. And not just before we were born, okay, before we ever existed, but before anything existed, before creation ever took place. That's what that phrase means, before the foundation of the world, before God created. In other words, it was an eternal choice as hard as that is to sort of conceive and comprehend. Before David, before Israel, before Abraham, before Adam, God made this choice of you in Christ. Another way to say this is that God has always had this plan in mind, the plan of summing up everything in Christ. Christ is the centerpiece of history, And all of God's good, wise, and perfect plan was designed around Him and us in Him. And it's that's dizzying. I've been thinking about it all week. (laughs) And it's it's a little bit unsettling because it has nothing to do with us. It's completely uncontingent on anything that we bring to the table. We didn't even exist when God made this decision. But this deepens the encouragement. Our inclusion in salvation as Gentiles isn't God's plan B, because many of Israel chose not to believe. This is God's plan A. Exactly as things are unfolding today. In your life. In my life. Before time began, He sovereignly chose a people for Himself, and that included idolaters like you and me. If you believed in Jesus today. We're people who don't deserve it and never will, and we were a part of God's good and redemptive plan from eternity. That's what he's saying here. And notice also that Paul's explicit about the goal, the why of our election. Why he has chosen us. Now this is, don't, don't get confused here, this is the first of several goals in this passage. Okay, so it might be confusing. Right, we said that was the goal, and now he's saying this is the goal, and now he's saying that's the goal. Just think about it in your life. I mean, you got, that's normal, multiple goals for things, right? And they all kind of harmonize uh, in one overarching goal, and that's what we're going to see in this passage. But one of the goals of our election is what he says at the end of verse 4. Look, at, look, at, look together with me. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. The purpose, the goal was that we should be, we will be, holy and blameless in His presence before Him. So I just summarize that as saying perfection. Perfection for us. That's the goal. To be holy, like he says here, is to be morally pure, righteous, and good. To be blameless is sort of the negative side of that, saying it negatively, to to have no faults found with you, Nothing for which to receive blame. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> be blameless. No more blame, right? Uh, no, no more things to be blamed for. 
And holy and blameless together are a way of saying absolute perfection, glorification, complete Christ-likeness. And that's happening before the Lord, before Him. So what does that mean? Like, talking about time or what? No, it's talking about His location, before Him, meaning in His presence. So this is getting at this idea that we're going we're gonna to have full and complete communion with Him and holy service to Him. That was what it means to be before the Lord on that final day. And you can write down... Um, i write it down here. No, I think I deleted it. In chapter 5, Paul says something very similar about being that Christ presents us before Himself as blameless and He uses kind of the same language and it's talking about that same day in chapter 5. But that's the idea. We stand before the Lord in glorious perfection, fully bearing the image of Christ. It's looking to that final day. Okay, that's the goal of his choice for you, is that you would be that. And he's going to make that happen. Okay? And get this, though. The process starts now. The process starts now, today. When you believe in Jesus, a renovation project occurs. You've been created anew in the Lord, and now he's going to work that out in you today. All who are chosen for holiness will reflect that in the pursuit of a holy life now, today. Not in perfection. Not in perfection. Today. Slower. Um, Not completely, but we will be progressing. The pursuit of godliness now confirms our election. And that's 2 Peter 1. To say it differently, everyone that God has chosen will be attracted to this kind of holiness and God will see to it that their lives begin to progressively reflect this holiness now. Think about the absurdity of a God who has chosen you to be holy and blameless and you have no desire to do that. No desire to actually be holy and blameless. That's, that's absurd. And yet there's so many Christians running around today that have no desires for holiness. No, that they think they can live however they want claiming to be elect. <laughs> claiming to be part of God's people. So we're looking at this in the face and we're seeing this and we just have to take inventory of our lives are we pursuing the holiness that the author of Hebrews says, without which we will not see the Lord? It doesn't mean we earn our salvation, but it's, it's reflective. It's a, it's a proof. It's a fruit that we do know the Lord, that we've trusted Him, and as a result have been chosen. So, summary. Why have we been blessed with every spiritual blessing? Because we have been eternally chosen for perfection in His presence. That's how I would summarize it. And that's the first part of Paul's answer. But he doesn't stop there. He continues to elaborate more on this eternal, mysterious choice, but he uses different imagery, different language. And that's our second, the second half of his answer here, the second part. He says, We have been lovingly destined for adoption into his family. Lovingly destined for adoption into his family. And if we're tempted when we read verse 4, what we just talked about, if we're tempted to see that as sort of kind of a sterile, arbitrary choice that God makes, and it's kind of cold, and it's like, ooh, and it's not very appealing, Paul won't let us do that in this next half of his answer. I mean, he pours it on. 
to show us the motive of God when He chose you. What was in His heart toward you when He chose you in, in the eternal moment, if you will. So, key in here. We have been lovingly destined for adoption into His family. Look at verse 5. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So read it again. In love, He predestined us, there's our verb, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So we've been lovingly destined for adoption into His family. My translation, which I think is helpful, puts it into another sentence, like a separate sentence. But it's really just a flow. It's a participle that's flowing out of the choice. So he's continuing to elaborate on the choice in verse 4. So we've been chosen, being lovingly destined for adoption. It would be a way to, a way to put that. It's a continuation of the thought in verse 4. He uses a different word, though, a different verb, very similar. And most translations say predestined. That's the, that's the verb. It's very similar to being chosen or being elected. The word simply means to predetermine. I think I have that up here. Yeah, predestined just means to determine beforehand or predetermine, make a decision beforehand. It doesn't have any inherently like theological weight. They used it about decisions that were premeditated, that were made you know, in you know, normal everyday life. But in, in this context, the way Paul is using this phrase he makes it clear that the decision is still before the foundation of the world. Because, again, right, it's a continuation of the first, of the verse 4, which is happening in this eternal moment. But the particular nuance here is that God has destined us to something. Okay? He's destined us to something, for something. It's forward-looking. And it's related to our destiny as His people. And so, the people translate it as predestined, Right? So it's to destiny beforehand. Assign a destiny. Once I was asked by a, not even the pastor, but the wife of the past, my former pastor uh, in North Carolina that I grew up under and I adored and admired. She asked me if I believed in predestination after I'd become a believer. And all I knew was that, you know, this text. And so it seemed like an odd question to me. What, like, do I believe in predestination? Uh, I mean, right here, <laughs> he says it right here, you know, so we have to, we have to deal with that. So um, I think that's another, another issue that we have to look at this and say, okay, what, what does this mean? We have to deal with this and we have to bring our minds to understand exactly what Paul is intending here. And the, the thrust and the force is it's, it's surrounded by love and it's, into a, it's unto adoption into his family. So thus the translation predestined. So what is our destiny? What is our destiny? What has God marked us out beforehand for? Here's another goal. It's goal number two. It's so that we would receive adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So that we would receive adoption as sons. Now this is for guys and girls. 
Okay, so I know that adoption of sons sounds like a guy thing, but sonship is very important. All right, so it's very rich with Old Testament background. So you guys remember last week, for those of you who were here, we explored this a bit. We talked about how the, the father and son relationship was between God and his Davidic king. Remember that? So God calls himself father. He calls his Davidic king his son. 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 2. And Jesus, as God's final and glorious king, the true and faithful son, has fulfilled God's plan. Remember, everything centers in him. God made this choice in the Messiah before anything ever began. Okay? So it's all centered in this son. He was perfectly obedient, and he died as a sacrifice for sin. He obtained the blessings for us. And then he distributes them freely as our king, as the true son. But here's the glorious part. Paul is saying that through Jesus, notice here, adoption of sons through Jesus Christ, through Jesus, we receive adoption as sons. Now this is staggering. Because he's saying that we share in the sonship of Jesus. Okay? We share in the sonship of Jesus. As wicked, defiled, unworthy as we are, we share in that. Like, that's what it means to be in Christ. Men and women, boys and girls, slave and free, share in the sonship. To be a son means we get the inheritance of the son, to get the family privilege of the son, to get the responsibilities of the son. I mean, responsibility. Wait a minute. It's for Jesus, right? Like, he's the king, not me. Well... Read a little more carefully. In chapter 2, Paul will say that we've been made alive with Christ. Yeah, we acknowledge that. We've made alive. We've been raised with Christ, right? And what does he say? We've been... Say it loud. Seated with Christ. Now, you might think, that's odd. Like, why are we seated with Christ? Like, what is the point of that? Are legs tired? No. That's not the point. The point is that he is king... And has assumed his throne, and we've been, we're, we're like sitting there with him, you know? So, he, what he's saying is, we're going to get the responsibilities of Jesus in the kingdom. We're going to reign with him. So, we've been made sons in the Son. We're going to share his glory, we're going to share his perfections, share his exaltation, we're going to share his reign over the earth. And here, Paul says that this has always been our destiny. Always. There's no way to conceive of a more significant purpose for your life than what this verse declares for you. And if, when this begins to sink in, it, it transforms everything. It touches everything. Mary and I were just talking about this. It's so tempting to live life in the rearview mirror, especially as the older you get and we start interacting with saints and other people and unbelievers and But the brightest days are always ahead for us. Always ahead. They're always coming. Because we are going to inherit the sonship. And it motivates us to view life now as as preparation for the life then. It it fills our most insignificant moments with purpose. and, And everything is headed in a direction. Everything that happens to us is for this ultimate end. To share in this sonship. And... Man, we could, just, we could explore this all day long, but just for the sake of time, I've got to get moving here to finish this text. 
just know that if you're searching for a purpose in your life, uh, this is pretty good. Uh, there's, no, there's no greater glorious goal for you than this. To have been an enemy and to now share in the sonship of Jesus through Jesus Christ. And that was God's plan. Is God's plan for you if you've believed in him. And just to keep piling on to this beautiful family imagery here, notice what motivated God to do this. Notice all the little modifying phrases around this verb. Okay? He does it in love. See that? In love, he predestined us. This is eternal love. A love that isn't contingent on the worthiness of its object, on your worthiness, because you're not. It's a love that's generated from God, from His person, from His heart, to you, to make the objects of His love lovable and lovely. To sacrifice Himself for their needs, for their good. It's not a needy love. It's not not the cosmic boyfriend that just needs some affirmation. That's not the Lord. He's an overflowing and generous God. And this love motivated his eternal choice for you. So it's loving. Notice also, put this up here, God's motives, love. Notice also that Paul says he chose you for himself. He chose you for himself. Now, if you're reading ESV, you're saying, where does it say that? Well, they didn't translate that phrase. I don't know why they didn't. But it's in there. It's in the Greek text. Um, so it's, it's unto himself, literally, is how it's, is how it's translated. Or how it should be translated. Paul says that God chose you for himself. It's important. It means that he is eternally desired to relate to us and for us to know him. That was part of the eternal desire of God. To bring us into relationship with himself. In just a few verses, we're described as his inheritance. That's a pretty raw deal. Like, God's inheritance? We are God's inheritance? That's what it says. He chose us for himself. He chose us for relationship. And finally, this choice, Paul says, is according to the good pleasure of his will. The good pleasure of his will, meaning it's consistent with the perfect, good, and wise plan for the universe. I just say it's for his pleasure. He does what he wants. He does what pleases him, and guess what? Pleased him. Choose you for himself. It's according to the good pleasure of his will to destine you for this adoption as his son. And all these phrases come together here, and these, these motives come together to assure us of the Father's disposition toward us. Are you a believer in Jesus this morning? If you are, do you ever doubt that God loves you? Do you ever wonder about that? Do you ever doubt his intentions for your life? What we're taught here obliterates that. It obliterates it. You have never not been loved. It's not because of anything you did. Ever. 
He loves you. It's always been his attitude toward us, even when we were unbelievers and enemies of the gospel, before all of that. This was our destiny, to receive sonship through Jesus Christ. If we could get a glimpse of that, it would transform everything. And finally, just notice the final goal in this passage. It's the most central goal of the whole passage. And it's going to come again and again. We sang about it in the this, in this song. Brian led us in singing this refrain this morning together. It's, it literally reads, To the praise of the glory of His grace. The praise of the glory of His grace. So God's choice of you... Um, yeah, that's goal number three there. God's choice of you is destining you to adoption is ultimately to highlight the great glory of His grace. He desires to show how gracious He really is. His goal is that you see its radiance and you come to adore and praise Him for it. It's a stunning and beautiful picture. God's people, you and I, clothed in holiness and blamelessness, ruling the new heavens and the new earth with Christ, enjoying the perfect and unhindered communion with God, exploring our infinite inheritance and radiating with praise to God who designed it all. That's the vision. That's God's goal for you if you believe in Jesus, and that's what He's chosen for you. And that's view number one from the observation deck of the lighthouse, right? That's true north, and it's going to lead to the other blessings that we're going to see next week. So why have we been blessed? This is Paul's two-part answer. We've been chosen for perfection and destined for adoption. And these blessings that we experience now are in full harmony with what God has planned for us in eternity past. And if this is new information for you, this is hard to swallow, hard to get your mind around, that's okay. It's not new information for me, and it's still hard for me to get my mind around. So, I just want to encourage you, wrestle with this. Don't ignore it. Because it's intended for you, for your upbuilding in the faith. Wrestle with it. Look up other passages. Come talk to us. We'll help you think through these things. Don't go off the logical deep end, you know, as your mind wants to make all these other connections about the character and nature of God that would actually contradict Scripture. Don't do that. Okay? Again, only go where Scripture goes in this, but... but Don't ignore it. God intends these truths to richly bless you when you grasp them by faith. And just really quick, what happens in our lives when these these truths really begin to sink in? I said we could could talk about this really all day, and we can. But I just want to highlight just a couple really quick as we end. What happens when these truths begin to really permeate our hearts? Will new levels of humility take root in your life? And new levels of gratitude take root. Beyond what you thought was possible before. So that means that somebody who speaks about these things arrogantly or unlovingly or impatiently is evidencing they don't understand this. They don't get it. They're blind to these things. Those who most clearly understand God's unconditioned choice of them are most humbled, most low to the ground, They profoundly understand that even their own faith 
what they did was an ordained gift. And they praise God for everything. So it humbles us and it gives us new levels of gratitude. Second, it gives us greater security, a sense of belonging, an understanding of God's love. Do you know in Scripture that when we're called chosen, elect, almost always the follow-up word is beloved? Chosen and beloved? You know, does that ring a bell? You hear that a lot in Colossians. To be chosen is to be loved. It's like the man who chooses to marry the woman who has his heart. I mean, it's, that's the idea. I mean, it's to, to be chosen by God is to be loved by God. And so when we understand this, there's a greater security, a greater sense of belonging and understanding of God's love. I mean, we are secure in Him far more profoundly than we ever dared to dream and imagine. I understand when when we think about God's choosing us, we kind of recoil at that. It's like, why why would He choose? Like, not going to choose. No, He's not going to choose. Like, I made it possible and then I chose Him. I mean, but that's not what this text is saying. But there's greater security on the back end of that, knowing that God holds you and has always held you eternally. Number three, and there's four, so almost done. It infuses us, this truth infuses us with hope and confidence in evangelism and mission. One of the things you hear often is like, you believe in the left, like, so we shouldn't evangelize. You just told on yourself, because it, you just revealed you don't understand this either. You know, it's like the arrogant guy. You don't get it. Like, you're, you're misunderstanding what this text is intending. Who is the greatest missionary ever? Starts with a P, ends with all, right? Paul was the greatest missionary ever and was the clearest teacher of election. The most fervent man who prays, right? Well, God's going to do everything anyway. Why should we pray? Paul would smack that guy, all right? Like, stop saying that. Like, that's not what this means. It is... Election, these things infuse us with hope and confidence in evangelism and missions. How? God has also destined other people to sonship. He has other sheep that are not of this fold yet. They will eventually believe. And we get the destined privilege to be blessed in the ordained means to go find them as we share the gospel, as we love those who hate us, as we suffer to bring them the truth. We can't mess this up. Like God is going to do it. He frees us. It frees us to speak with bold love and confidence toward other people. And we don't understand election if it doesn't motivate us to go to others. We don't get it. And number four, last one, it infuses us with greater hope and anticipation for the future. And this hope transcends this life. And its circumstances. In particular, the bad ones that we hate, that are hard, that are painful, that rip our hearts out sometimes. This hope transcends that. There's a greater purpose, a greater destiny than what you're experiencing, even if you're in the, in the most mundane, awful places on this planet, experiencing the most heinous suffering that Satan and sin has to offer. This is your destiny. And it will transform the way you see those circumstances as you understand the, the destiny in God behind them for your good and, and for His glory. So, all this is just going to work together. I mean, we can keep talking about these things, but it's the first thing Paul says for a reason. 
Okay, this isn't some backdoor, backwoods doctrine. This is important to Paul. It's cherished by Paul, and it it fuels Paul's praise to the triune God. So I, my prayer, for my own heart, for your heart, that it would do the same for us. So if you have questions, please come talk. Um, let's close in prayer, and then uh, you'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for this text. We lay our hands over our mouths because we dare not say anything more than you've said, but we dare not say anything less. So help us, as Paul prays later, to understand these things by faith. Help us to grasp them and to see the implications of how it should change our lives in the day-to-day, mundane, difficult circumstances. Infuse us with hope and purpose like we've just talked about as we meditate on these truths and as we study the book of Ephesians together. We ask it in Christ's name.